Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus Morningstar coming to you from Sydney, Australia. This is episode two of Story Mode, the podcast for Storyboard, where I share with you reviews, news, and my occasional muse. In this podcast, I try to cover aspects of the tabletop gaming hobby from a couple of different angles, sometimes industry, sometimes design, sometimes as a reviewer. Now, in this episode, I have a couple of segments for you. I will be opening up with a segment I like to call retail, where I share some of the experiences and insights I have from working in a retail store. I also have a review of the recently released game Underwater Cities. Following that, I have a segment where I discuss the design implications and philosophies for two-player games, largely following a conversation that happened on the podcast of Meeple Syrup. And to finalize, I want to explore a very interesting topic about including trans folk into gaming circles and why it's not just about platitudes, let's say. Now, I'd like to take a moment to do a few little sort of house matters. Now, those of you who followed my first episode last week would have realized I did it on SoundCloud. I have since moved to Podbean and will be using that going forward largely because of cost, but also because the features it offers. And the previous week's episode has also been uploaded to Podbean. I would also like to take a moment to thank everyone who gave me such really strong positive uh, feedback from that first episode. It's really encouraged me and I'm now very excited to do this weekly podcast. I have no uh, limit of information or ideas or topics that I want to explore. And I also just want to briefly segue into a There's a bit of a running joke when it comes to me and the industry. They say I have the face of uh, Rodney Smith from Watch It Played and then the voice of Eric Summoner from Dice Tower. Now, by way of example, I get a number of people who sometimes ask me if I'm the presenter on the One Night Ultimate Werewolf vocals. And to give you a comparison, everybody, close your eyes, werewolves. Wake up and look for the other werewolves. And with this, let's get into our episode. This is a segment that I like to call Retail, where I share adventures and stories from my time working in a friendly local gaming store. Naturally, because I'm in Sydney, the term local could be a bit euphemistic to you, but I digress. So this week I want to look at the meet and greet. It's a very important, but a very succinct element of engaging with customers. Customers need a little bit of time to decompress when they enter into a store. They need to absorb what's around them and they need to relax and they need to feel comfortable. There's a very interesting adage that the more time someone spends in your store, the more likely they are to spend in your store. However, you don't want to ignore them either because ignoring a customer is a very subtle way of making them feel unwelcome. So you have to at least engage with them very minutely. One of the very interesting reactions that frequently happens as a result is I will open up with a simple hello to be replied, just looking. Now, I understand this comes from a place of defensiveness. You know, you've gone into a shop, you just want to be left alone. You don't want to have to deal with people. And this is the quickest way to shut them down. Unfortunately, from my perspective, it's actually quite demoralizing. You know, I'm, I'm there to try and create a friendly environment for you. I'm sort of extending myself to you. And all you do is just shut me down. 
So maybe this is a little bit of a plea to those of you who go to shops. Never just dismiss the uh, retail staff. They're, they're people too. Feel free to just acknowledge them and just say, no, I'm happy just to be on my own devices. I can assure you most retail staff will be happy to leave you to their own devices and they're merely doing their job and approaching you. One of the interesting things, though, that happened this week in the store, there was, I presume, a father, um, 40s, 50s, something like that, came into the store and he was talking to me about, you know, wanting to buy something for his daughter. And he proceeded to tell me that his daughter was into D&D. Now, at this point, you know, my face starts beaming into a broad smile because I'm always happy to hear about women, especially younger women, getting into gaming and finding support for that. And then he finishes the sentence with, weirdly. At that point, my face freezes in a rictus of a smile. And I I hope I'm not betraying any of the inner turmoil I'm suddenly feeling at this revelation. So either he finds it weird because he thinks D&D itself is weird. He finds it weird because his daughter is a she, or he finds it weird because maybe he used to play it. And it's funny that his kids are playing it now. Only one of those interpretations is generous. And I couldn't let myself respond to anything on on the off chance that it wasn't the generous interpretation. I'm going to finish up with one of my elevator pitches. I'm going to try and introduce these to every retail session that I do, largely so that you can hear how I tell a customer what a game is about when they don't have any point of reference for it. And of course, I'm going to start with that great classic, Catan. Catan is a game of building, trading and settling. Your goal is to be the first to 10 points on this island. You start with two settlements, each of them gives you a point. You can build more settlements for more points, or you can upgrade them to cities for a second point. In order to do this, you are going to require various resources that you get from the island, ore, wood, sheep, etc. However, the resources that you get each round are somewhat generated randomly based on where you are on the island and how the dice are rolled. And what this does is it forces you to open up trades with the other players. And these trades are a little bit free for all. So you could negotiate for several wood for one sheep. And this entices players to be favorite to those who may be lagging behind or punish those who are in the lead. And the core experience is this interaction of trading to build and expand. In this segment, I'm going to give you my impressions of Underwater Cities. It's a game by Vladimir Suchi when came out at Essen in 2018. Now, Suchi is famous for a number of games and some of my favorites include Shipyard. So Suchi has a very interesting pedigree when it comes to creating discrete and subtle interactions of card use. And you'll certainly see that here in Underwater Cities. The goal of the game is to be the the person that builds up the best network of underwater city domes. We are facing climate change, the oceans are rising, and so the required solution is one that allows us to live underwater. Generally, what you're trying to do is produce self-sustaining underwater domes and connect them into a network that you'll be building on the ocean floor. Each dome will need certain amounts of food, and each dome can be attached to particular production buildings that are able to produce one of the various forms of currencies in the game. What the focus of the game does is it will have you play in several rounds. In each round, you'll get three actions. 
and you choose one of the available actions on the board and you match it with a card from your hand. Now in doing so, both the action spaces on the board and the cards in your hand are color coded, green, yellow, and red. If you are able to color match both action and card, not only do you do the action on the board, but you also do the action on the card. If not, the card is merely wasted because you must expend a card with each action. So you have this very interesting dynamic of trying to optimize a combination of choices. So it has that typical worker placement pressure of which of these opportunities do I wanna take and which ones am I happy to allow risking not being available for the next round? But you have to layer that opportunism with what actions are in your hand because you only ever have three typically you have to make discrete decisions around that the game also has a tendency to ramp up quite nicely across the course of the game you can see the game is broken into a beginning middle and end phase each of them is punctuated by a production cycle so you get a chance to get a return on the investment of your actions at the end of each phase the at cards in the first phase are modest and the gains you gain are modest in the mid phase, they're better. And in the end phase, they can be quite powerful, but obviously you have less time to capitalize on them. This is not unusual for games of this nature. What I think is really interesting though, is the gains you get are typically quite small. You only get a few or small amounts of resources out of your actions. And yet each of those resources are quite powerful. You can use them in lots of ways and almost everything needs a little bit of resources. So even modest gains get you to bootstrap up to the next level of activity. And this segues quite nicely into the power of the second phase. And the greater gains you get from the second phase help you bootstrap into the powerful stuff in the third phase. So it's a very uh, implicit arc, but the arc builds quite nicely towards your actions. This is where I think Underwater Cities manages to work quite well. It is you know, typical engine building, and it's a really good example of engine building. And the engine building is constrained by the dichotomy of choices of a lot of actions on the board, but very limited choices within your hand and trying to work within that. The game has uh, two sides to the board. One is more suited for the three or four player game and one is suited for the two player side of the game. Now I have played it a few times and my take is I much prefer just the two player game. I find when it's large multiplayer, you do get a lot of downtime, especially as people are trying to optimize their strategies in that end game phase where a lot of the little details and a lot of little engine building parts that they've got in play can ramp up. With two players, obviously you get an offset of that. And I find the tightness of the decisions is much more constrained. So rather than more of an open field on the board and it's like, well, this and this and this will be available. I have to go, well, I've only got fewer choices. If I don't take this now, I'm really going to regret it. Or do I want to risk that? So I think it accentuates that aspect, the tension of that worker placement feel of underwater cities. So my overarching impression of Underwater Cities is quite favorable. I understand some people said they compared it to Terraforming Mars. And look, there is a little bit of a link there, particularly with the card selection action. But beyond that, it feels like a different game. So ultimately, I can highly recommend Underwater Cities. Very much prefer the two-player version. I think maybe my favorite entry is from Suchi.
The Meeple Syrup podcast recently discussed player count and designing for specific players. One of the more interesting comments came from Jeff Engelstein via way of Gilhova, who likened the design difference between two and three player games something of a third body problem. It's relatively easy to account for the interactions of two bodies in Celestial Calculus, but the moment you include a third body, the maths becomes more difficult, and exponentially so with every additional player added. One of the games I played this week that exampled this phenomenon was Grand Austria Hotel. This game may be played two to four players, and its core mechanism involves drafting dice from a common pool. The centrality of this pool means that the more players present, the greater the entropy of the game state by the time it comes back to you. This is accentuated because the game employs a snake draft such that the first player gets first and last pick, and the second player gets second and second last pick. What this means is the mental load for the decision of drafting is loaded more heavily for each player. It places an onus on trying to anticipate a broader divergence of options by the time it gets back to you for your second pick. This additional load causes each individual to take longer turns, and so as the game as a whole dilates, grows longer. This is a perfect example of why additional players don't increase the length of the gameplay arithmetically, but exponentially. Compare this to another game I recently played, Race of the Galaxy. Mostly, race allows players to perform actions simultaneously, so downtime rarely is a factor. It's a feature of its simultaneous phase selection mechanism. But what Race of the Galaxy, as well as its antecedent Puerto Rico does distinctly, is to offer a two-player variant, where both players pick two phases. And this offers a different experience to the standard game. You can see similar phenomenon in Citadels, where the two-player variant has both players drafting two characters. I considered these excellent examples of two-player variants. They managed to capture the core elements of the game, but there is a twist here, and this offers a new, and in my opinion, a better game for these games. I just simply prefer the tighter tactical framing that these variants offer. Now, compare this to the two-player variants for Seven Wonders and Mysterium, and also Mysterium's three-player variant. And I think they're so notoriously ill-fitting to the game's experience that labeling these games as two to seven player game is woefully misleading. I kind of agree with the sentiment expressed on Maple Syrup that these boxes should list themselves as three to seven and four to seven player counts respectively, and then note a two-player variant. One of the ways that several games try to incorporate a two-player variant is to introduce a dummy player. And you can see this in games where there is the necessity of a multiplicity of player interaction. However, almost every instance of this mechanism I found to be quite lackluster. And this is largely because the dummy player just represents an administrative exercise that other players must work, and it intrudes upon the flow of the game. However, I'd like to take a moment to observe Tokaido as a notable exception. Now, Tokaido is a game about pilgrims following a journey along the 52 stations of the Tokaido. One of the core mechanisms is the player who acts is that who is furthest back along the path. When the dummy player is present in the two-player variant, it's mostly there as a blocking mechanism, but doesn't try to simulate anything else. There is 
an interesting decision though because the person who gets to move the dummy player is a direct consequence of relative placement on the path. And the game is simple enough that incorporating this new element of calculus is a reasonable and legitimate tactical experience. And so the dummy player becomes a feature and not a bug of the two-player experience. However, I think the best way to understand what two-player games offer and the unique experience of these is to look to games designed exclusively as two-player options. Some of the games I played recently include Patchwork, Shot and Totten, also known as Battleline, and Fox in the Forest. I think the first two only work as two-player experiences, with Patchwork and Shot and Totten have, having this really interesting tete-a-tete direct conflict experience. Fox in the Forest is also interesting because it normally takes the multiplayer mechanism of trick-taking and twists it into something novel for two players. As I branch out into game design myself, I'm finding these observations to reflect very truly for Bone Idols. Now, without indulging mention of my own game too much, it's a game that features eminent houses working to leave their mark on a beautiful cemetery. The idea for this game originally began after playing Santa Maria and finding I just really couldn't play the game due to the historical significance of the period covered. However, the dice drafting mechanism was incredibly interesting. One of the big design decisions and differences I made upon this was rather than individual player boards of a grid, there is now a central player board where players are competing over. And this transition from personal to global fundamentally changes the dice drafting mechanism. The six by six grid that Santa Maria used was just really too small for what I wanted to do at the three or four player count, but greater too. So I briefly experimented with making a strange hexagonal grid board that could go up to six players but that effectively excluded the two-player count. And for a while, I was just working with the idea of having a three or four-player game. But I'm still finding that the permutations of the interactions that I want to capture were just too cumbersome. And all of these experiments and discussions and reflections have brought me back to that great tightness that the original 6x6 grid offered. And so I now find that I'm wanting to double down on forming it as a two-player exclusive format. Play to the experience rather than trying to shoehorn other experiences into it. And it conforms to the suggestion that Gil and Senfung were outlining that one of the first design decisions that you must make is to determine a specific player count and design for that player count. So I guess I'm hoping to focus on designing a really good two-player game rather than maybe a mediocre three or four-player game. 31st of March was Trans Visibility Day. On that day, one commenter posed a question to our Facebook gaming group regarding what those gaming groups can do or might already do to include trans players. The conversation that followed was rather interesting. Now, normally this is a rather progressive group, the one that I'm thinking of, and yet the comments, despite showing a number of very positive and supporting comments, still featured quite a large range of blithe and even unkind comments. Now, while very few of these comments sought to vilify trans folk, although some did, the problem was a continued and uh, pernicious display of apathy and ignorance. And it's this that I want to address in this conversation because it's not enough to tolerate. There is actually some work on including 
And that's why treating everyone the same is not really a good strategy. I still found in this conversation that there's a lot of gaps of knowledge about what trans issues are like. And I want to cover a little bit of this as a 101. In doing so, I do need to acknowledge that I am not trans myself, so I'm not speaking for trans people or their communities. Uh, as someone who is genderqueer, some of their issues affect me um, at their broadest on the peripheries, but most of these issues are quite narrow to the trans lived experience. To start, I would just say, well, trans is not a noun. People are not a transgender any more than I am a gay. Trans is an adjective. So you will have trans men and trans women. As you use terms in this way, you are therefore affirming them as men and women respectively while recognizing their trans history. You can also just call them men and women. You don't always have to note their transness. Second, not all trans folk focus on passing and not all trans folk seek out surgery. The assumption that they must comes from the idea that gender is binary and the only legitimate expressions of gender are those that conform to one of two modes. But as gender binaries become more ambiguous, it creates a space where transitioning itself is no longer a binary. This helps decouple the notion of a person's gender away from sexual anatomy. Also, misgendering, therefore, tends to be a bit of a common problem. While there are some people that do it maliciously to deny a person's gender, more commonly it just happens as a result of how people have habituated a person's gender or how people perceive a person's gender as opposed to what their actual gender is. This is because pronouns are a reflexive process. We don't tend to think about the labels that we apply to people. If in doubt, using gender neutral terms like the singular they is usually a pretty safe bet. Uh, and also doing work to normalize affirming people's gender can actually be quite rewarding and a new habit to form. And here's the key, forming new habits. This is actually what's at the core of questions like, what is your group doing to help making a space more inclusive? Because the world is largely set up against trans folk, you know, and other minorities. And that is a consequence of certain invisible habits that we tend to carry with ourselves. By questioning those habits, we're asking you to challenge them, asking me as well, and to break those habits down and form new habits. This is the work of inclusion, creating new habits and not merely resting on inaction. And by way of example, I want to address some of the comments that came up there just to sort of showcase how it manifests. So some of the more benign but apathetic comments are things like, you know, all are welcome to the table. Let's treat everybody the same. I want to be blind to gender. I want to treat them like normal people. You know, let's put aside the fact that they're suggesting that maybe they're not normal people in that comment. But as you can see, these comments have this common theme of as long as I treat them the same, everything will take care of itself. Well, no, that's... It's good that you're not actively trying to hurt anyone, but you're also trying to be blind to the social problems that inhibit inclusion. It's trying to 
not have to do any of the mental or emotional work needed to bring about that change to make the space inclusive. And misgendering is just one example. What habits are you doing to change your view of gender? Going a little bit more deeply, things like no one does anything special to make me welcome. I'm just a guy. Giving special treatment prevents normalization. If I was part of the LGBTI community, I would feel discriminated if specifically targeted. I don't like labels. So that's where the sort of deeper, more problematic perception comes from, that somehow creating days for trans people in this case, or spaces for trans folk, or you know even safer spaces or whatever, is a form of special treatment. But and this is the thing that's really hard to get across unless you've actually been on the other foot. It's not creating special treatment. It's trying to claw back a whole range of behaviors and problems that are exhausting to deal with, especially on a day-to-day basis. These comments are one example. Dealing with these comments and dealing with this continued fray of ignorance and apathy is so exhausting. So what are you doing to change your attitudes? What are you doing to be mindful of things that are affecting trans folk in your environment? And it can just even be little things like putting a pride flag on on a, on a cash register or on a space or whatever, doing little signals that let people know this is a space where they can be themselves. And then on top of that, moderating your space. Because implicit in the idea that everyone is welcome at my table, that means so are homophobes, so are transphobes, so are people who would willfully wish me harm. So I don't want a space where just anyone is welcome. I want a space that is moderated, that is guided by maybe a code of conduct, one where I know the norms of this space are actually norms I am welcome at or trans folk are welcome at. And when it comes to queer folk and when it comes to trans folk, that can actually be a level of safety. So until I know a space is safe, until trans folk know a space is safe, and this is where I'm unfortunately using personal language to cover trans issues, until any queer people think that a space is safe, we assume It isn't because generally the minority are safe and the default presence in the world is not. So yes, to make a gaming group space safe, to make a gaming group inclusive, think about the things you're doing to create a space. Think about the things you're doing to moderate that space. And then when that's done, And when we can visibly see that work is being done, then that space is inclusive. So with this, we get to the end of the second episode of Story Mode. I'd like to thank all of you who have given your time to listen to me. It's very encouraging. If you want to support me further, I do have a Patreon where... Uh, You can do sort of minimal supporting for me month to month. One of the things I will be uploading to Patreon is a recital of The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. 
I also have t-shirts, which you can purchase on my website. Uh, you can find both the Patreon and the store just on storyboardgamer.com. So any other support you'd like to give me, I'd be very grateful for. But until then, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.